Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is May 10th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is Sitting on the Dock of the Bayesian Interpretation of Therapeutic Hypothermia for Pediatric Cardiac Arrest. Our guest skeptic today is Dr. Kat Prittis, who is a pediatric emergency medicine consultant and trauma director at Watford General Hospital. She is part of the awesome Don't Forget the Bubbles team and faculty at Queen Mary University in London, where she teaches part of the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Masters, which incidentally is where we met. So Dr. Prittis, welcome and lovely to have you on SGMPEDS. Hi, Dennis. It's so great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm struggling not to start talking nerdy immediately, but first things first, let's give a shout out to Twitter for actually suggesting this article for the SGM to review. And I have to admit, I'm very glad that I have Kat because I do not have a strong background in Bayesian statistics. And as Kat and I were working on our trauma module for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Masters, I discovered she has a fascination for Bayesian approach to research. So I figured, you know what, let's take advantage of this dream team that we have going and ask her to be our guest on SGMPEDS. So Kat, you brought us a case today? I have indeed. So here is the case. You are working at the Community Emergency Department, the ED, when you receive a call from the local emergency medicine service, the EMS team that they are bringing a two-year-old boy who's had a cardiac arrest at home. He had been having some upper respiratory symptoms in the previous days, and his parents had found him that morning in bed, blue and unresponsive. They started cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, until the EMS team arrived. Now, upon arrival in the ED, your team promptly begins high-quality CPR, and they manage to obtain return of spontaneous circulation. As you are mentally running through your checklist for post-arrest care and preparing to transfer the patient, a team member tells you that there are potentially two hospitals in the area that may be able to accept the patient. Now, one of the hospitals has a paediatric intensive care unit that has the capacity to perform therapeutic hypothermia, but that one's further away. So which hospital should you transfer the patient to? Oh, cardiac arrest is such, such a hard thing to encounter, especially in the pediatric population. But today we're talking about therapeutic hypothermia and cardiac arrest, which has been covered on SGM multiple times, all the way back to SGM number 21 and 54, and most recently in SGM 391. Ken and Justin Morgenstern of First 10 EM provided a very nice summary of the history of therapeutic hypothermia that you can check out. So we won't belabor that point, but other therapeutic hypothermia trials included the target temperature management or TTM trial, Hyperion, and TTM2. However, we have not covered the therapeutic hypothermia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in children, or THAPCA-OH trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. But we're not just looking at that paper, we're actually adding on a second paper to this discussion as well we're going to look at the Bayesian interpretation of the original study. Oh my gosh, Kat, a two-for-one experience. Get ready. All right, what's our clinical question today? So our clinical question is, does therapeutic hypothermia provide any benefit in neurobehavioral outcomes and survival in out-of-hospital pediatric cardiac arrest? 
Okay, since we're covering two papers today, we're going to do things a little bit differently because it's hard to talk about the Bayesian interpretation of a study and not talk about the actual study itself. So again, here's a two for one special. So we're going to give you the PICO and quality checklist on the original FAPCA OH study. We'll give you the author's conclusion from both papers. And then we'll get super nerdy and talk about the limitations of the original trial. And Kat's going to help me out with that Bayesian interpretation. So the original trial was published by Moeller et al., titled Therapeutic Hypothermia After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in Children. And that was, again, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. And the Bayesian? So the Bayesian is Jorge Mo et al., who did a Bayesian interpretation of a pediatric cardiac arrest trial, the SAPCA trial. And that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence in 2023. All right, Kat, let's break it down into the PICO question sections. What was the population? So they had 295 pediatric patients. And those patients had an age greater than two days to less than 18 years. They were hospitalized in pediatric intensive care units at 38 children's hospitals. And they were admitted after having an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, these children received chest compressions for at least two minutes, and they remained on mechanical ventilation after achieving retain of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC. And who was excluded? So there were multiple exclusions. The main major exclusion criteria included an inability to randomise within six hours of ROSC. But they also excluded children who had a Glasgow Coma Scale or a GCS Motor Score of five or six and children for whom the decision to withhold uh, aggressive treatment by the clinical team was made, as well as children who'd had a traumatic cardiac arrest. And what was the intervention? So the intervention was therapeutic hypothermia, and that was with a target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius. The children were paralysed and sedated, and they maintained a core temperature of 33 degrees Celsius for 48 hours before gradually being rewarmed. And what was the comparison? So they compared this with a therapeutic normothermia with a target temperature of 36.8 degrees Celsius. Okay, let's talk about the outcomes real quick. What was the primary outcome they were looking at? So the primary outcome was survival with good neurobehavioral outcome at 12 months. And they defined that outcome using something called the Vineland Adaptive Behavioral Scales, or VABS2 score. And they looked at a score of 70 or higher. And that's from a total overall score of 20 to 160, with higher scores associated with better function. And there are secondary outcomes? Yep, secondary outcomes were survival at 12 months and a change in neurobehavioral function. And they also had a lot of other outcomes, including a global cognitive score, blood product use, infection, serious arrhythmias through seven days, and also a 28-day mortality. Let's finish it off with the trial. What kind of trial was this? So this was a multinational, unmasked, randomized clinical trial. And the author's conclusions from the original paper stated, quote, In comatose children who survive out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, therapeutic hypothermia, as compared to therapeutic normal thermia, did not confer a significant benefit in survival with good functional outcome at one year, end quote versus the conclusion from the Bayesian analysis that said there is a high probability that hypothermia provides a modest benefit in neurobehavioral outcome and survival at one year. Hmm. Okay, Kat. 
Let's talk about the quality checklist. First question, did the study population include or focus on those in the emergency department? No, these were PICU patients. Were the patients adequately randomized? Yeah, they had a really good randomization strategy. Was the randomization process concealed? It was. And were the patients analyzed in the groups that they were randomized? They were. Were the study patients recruited consecutively? Ah, no, they were not. And were the patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? For the most part, yes. Were all participants, the patients, clinicians, the outcome assessors, unaware of the group allocation? Well, no, because it was very difficult to mask the intervention from patients and clinicians. However, the interviewers who did the follow-up questionnaires were masked to group allocation. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, If you're cooling somebody, I imagine there's a lot of equipment involved with that and monitoring. Pretty much. (laughs) All right. Our next question, were all groups treated equally except for the intervention? We're unsure because beside the temperature management, all the other aspects of clinical care were driven by the treatment teams. So they basically had a free reign. Yep, that also makes sense in this uh, very acute setting. Do you think the follow-up was complete? Yeah, they they were good. The follow-up was at least 80% for both groups. Were all patient important outcomes considered? They were. Do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Well, that is the million dollar question. And the answer to that is we're unsure. But that's why we're also looking at the Bayesian interpretation. And the final question of our checklist, were there any financial conflicts of interest? So some investigators did report consulting fees from biomedical companies, uh, but it didn't seem like there were any obvious conflicts of interest. Okay, so that was the quality checklist from the original study. Is there a quality checklist for Bayesian studies? So sadly, there's no specific quality checklist for Bayesian studies. However, there are certain rules that you can use to help avoid bias. Oh man, as much as I want to get nerdy right now, I think we better talk about the results first. So what? 1,355 patients were screened and met inclusion criteria, 475 were eligible, and ultimately 295 underwent randomization with 155 in the hypothermia group and 140 in the normothermia group. The median age was two years of age and two-thirds were male. And a higher percentage of the patients in the normothermia group had asystole as their initial rhythm, 62% versus 55%. And a higher percentage of patients in the normothermia group also had a cardiovascular event as the cause of their arrest, 13 versus 9%, and still required chest compressions at the time of arrival to the first hospital, 73% versus 64%. Now, the key results from the original paper was that therapeutic hypothermia did not have significant benefit on survival with good neurological function compared to normothermia. And what was the key results from the Bayesian analysis? So interestingly, the key result from the Bayesian analysis said that there is a high probability that therapeutic hypothermia can have some benefit in survival with good neurological function compared to normothermia. Okay, Kat, I am now thoroughly confused. Two different studies, one studying the other study, arriving at different results and conclusions? Before we jump in too deep, we should probably review the outcomes from that original study. 
So talking about the original DAPCA OH study from 2015, what was their primary outcome? So they were looking at survival at one year with a VABS2 score of greater than 70. They showed that there was no statistical difference between the two groups. So they had a p-value of 0.14. What did they find for the results in the secondary outcomes? So the secondary outcome was survival at one year with a change in VABS2 score from baseline. And that was also not significantly different between the two groups. And that had a p-value of 0.13. And there also were not any statistically significant differences in use of blood products, arrhythmias, infections, or all-cause mortality at 28 days. In comparison for the Bayesian interpretation, their result was that the probability of any benefit from hypothermia was 94% for both neurobehavioral outcomes and survival at one year. Okay, Kat, it is time for my favorite section, and we are traveling deep into another dimension, a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of nerdiness. And this time we've gone so deep that we have not five, but 10 nerdy points. You ready to get started? I'm so ready to talk nerdy. All right. Point number one is about selection bias. Yeah. So this point pertains to the original FAPCA OH study. So when you look at the study design, there were a lot of exclusion criteria here, and that may have led to significant selection bias. Two of the reasons why patients were excluded included clinical judgment to withhold treatment and the family not approached for consent because the doctor thought participation was not appropriate. And those are really highly subjective exclusion criteria. Yeah, and additionally, we could not figure out why patients with a GCS motor score of five or six were excluded. Is it because they were too, uh, for lack of a better word, healthy? And this is especially odd because they also simultaneously excluded patients with poor function based on the VABS 2 score of less than 70 or pediatric overall performance category or pediatric cerebral performance category scores. So were they trying to find those Goldilocks patients for this study who were just right? Our second point is about masking and confounders. Now, we have to give them credit that the trained interviewer who collected the VABS2 score was masked to group allocation, but they were unable to mask the treatment team to the intervention. And additionally, the clinical teams had control over all other aspects of treatment outside of the temperature goals. Now, this lack of masking may have impacted how patients were treated based on their assigned group. Also, for the patients who died while in the hospital or within 28 days, Around 40% in both groups had a cause of death attributed to withdrawal of care for poor neurological prognosis. And this study was looking at the effects of hypothermia versus normothermia on survival and neurological outcomes. So excluding these patients where poor neurological outcome is not assured may also affect the results. Now, that being said, we still want to acknowledge that this is still a Appropriate, as the decision to withdraw care must have been devastating for both the family and the treatment team. Our third nerdy point is about the p-values. Now, believe it or not, there are several definitions for what a p-value is and what it is not. But where did that cutoff of 0.05 come from? Well, it's uh, kind of arbitrary. 
It was proposed by Ronald Fisher back in 1925, and we've used it ever since to determine whether or not something is statistically significant. But it's not that simple, right? Other fields use different p-value thresholds to determine significance, and something can be not clinically significant, but still be statistically significant, or vice versa. Also, is it really that dichotomous? Just because something doesn't meet that P of less than 0.05 threshold, does that mean the intervention doesn't work? And when the P value crosses a pre-specified significant threshold, now we're tempted to say that there's no difference between the two interventions, but that's not really accurate either. There can still be a difference. It's just not statistically significant. All right, now we enter the Bayesian statistics. So our point number four, let's talk a little bit about Bayesian statistics and the approach and definitions. The SGM covered a bit about this on an SGM Extra with Dr. Dan Lane, and there's a lot of great references in those show notes for you to check out. But how does Bayesian analysis compare to what we're more used to? I think if we look at the numbers themselves without considering p-values, it very much looks like there is a difference between therapeutic hypothermia versus normothermia, right, Kat? Yeah, absolutely right. So the hypothermia group had 20% good neurobehavioral outcomes compared to the 12% in the normothermia group. 20 versus 12. It seems like there's a difference. But let's start by talking about Bayes' theorem, which is described as revising prediction in light of relevant evidence. And in many ways, this reflects our clinical thinking. We consider what the previous evidence has demonstrated when considering new evidence. So Bayesian statistics looks at this trial in probabilistic terms. It looks at previous data, also called priors. And there's three different kinds of priors, right? Can you tell us a bit about each of those? Yeah, absolutely. So you have non-informative, informative, and standardized or hypothetical priors. So your non-informative priors. Now, this is where there's no prior existing data. And that means that you can only consider the observed trial data and you assume that every effect is possible. And that's quite useful because it helps you to pick up on small improvements. Then you have informative priors. So this is empirical or based off meta-analysis. And the authors for this trial used the TTM, the TTM2 and the Hyperion trials as their priors. And that's quite relevant. So we'll come back to that later. Now, the last set of priors is the standardized or hypothetical priors. Now, in this case, these were used to try to capture the full range of potential beliefs. And that's important because there are no trials on kids, only FAPCA. And these uh, standardized hypothetical priors, this is referring to the optimistic, neutral, and pessimistic beliefs, right? And I think as skeptics, we probably fall under that neutral category. Yeah, I think we probably fall under the neutral category. But essentially, these priors are designed to capture the full range all the way from most optimistic, all the way through to most pessimistic. And actually, that was really important in this trial, because even the most pessimistic hypothetical prior said that there was a teeny benefit from hypothermia. Now, overall, they arrived at a 94% probability of any benefit from hypothermia for neurobehavioral outcomes and one-year survival. And I think we're going to talk a bit more about priors and how they might affect bias a bit later. But Can we take a step back and we'll talk about our next nerdy point, which is why are we even doing Bayesian analysis? Well, 
Bayesian analysis looks at these results through a completely different lens. So when we talk about p-values, they seek only to disprove the null hypothesis, that hypothermia is not of any benefit. However, this binary approach to statistics means that any actual benefit is just, well, written off. A Bayesian approach seeks to not only determine if there's any effect, but that magnitude of the effect. And that's where Hahe's paper really comes into its own. Yeah, I like this approach already because it's rare that the answer in medicine is so clear cut, yes or no. So adding the gradations to evaluation of evidence is very appropriate. Okay, let's talk about point number six, these posterior probability distributions. What are those? This is the heart of Bayesian analysis. So the Bayesian framework seeks to create a posterior probability distribution. And that is where we are keeping our existing knowledge, that's our priors, to which we add our new knowledge. In this case, it's the observed trial data, which we call likelihood. And we use that to create the most up-to-date idea about an intervention. And that is our posterior probability distribution. Okay, let's get back to this paper real quick. What part of the original study warranted doing this Bayesian analysis? These two particular outcome measures had borderline p-values. And that's what makes them so ideal to apply a Bayesian framework to. The primary analysis looked at survival with good VABS 2 scores of greater than 70. And the group analysed this using non-informative priors, assuming no previous knowledge about whether hypothermia was good or bad. Now, when they looked at the measures of density against absolute benefit difference, they showed that for a non-informative prior only, the probability of benefit was 0.94. And the probability of harm was therefore 0.06, with a probability of severe harm less than 0.01. And that's for good neurobehavioral outcomes at one year. Okay, so they're saying that there's a 6% chance that there's some harm versus a 94% chance of some benefit. That's a very different way of looking at the data from the original trial. Point number seven is about how we prioritize priors. So we talked about a lot of different priors, and they used a lot of different priors in this study. So how in the world do you know which ones to use? But there were a lot of priors in the study. There were three from adult trials, and then there were nine from previously created standardized frameworks. These nine priors were hypothetical, designed to give a range. And when you look at their data, only the most pessimistic priors had a significant drop in benefit below 80%. Basically, for these priors, they were applying a mathematical model that suggested significant harm. And even then, as I said, there was a teeny suggestion of benefit, 2 to 4% from hypothermia. So this reanalysis showed low probability, even under optimistic priors, of a beneficial effect of therapeutic hypothermia as large as the postulated 20% absolute improvement. Okay, nerdy point number eight is about something called credible intervals. And I want to take a moment to talk about this concept because... It seems like it's broadly speaking similar to confidence intervals, except they're not. So Kat, can you explain a little bit more about how we interpret these credible intervals and what they mean? So this paper, when they looked at their non-informative prior, they had a median estimate of 6.8%. And surrounding that was this credible interval from minus 1.9 to 15.4. 
So essentially, that was saying that there was a slight increase in mortality, roughly 2%, versus up to a 15.4% improvement in benefit. And what's really fascinating is that these numbers are relatively similar to the confidence intervals in the original trial. However, whereas confidence intervals are measures of uncertainty around effect estimates, credible intervals are essentially looking at the data as a probabilistic statement. So it doesn't matter if credible intervals cross zero, because unlike confidence intervals, it's just a different way of looking at the data. A null or harmful effect is possible, but it's just not very probable. So I'm going to try to explain it like I'm five, because that's probably the functional equivalent for what I understand about Bayesian statistics. So if the credible interval is negative, this suggests that there is potential for harm, while a positive value suggests benefit. And the magnitude suggests the degree of harm or benefit. Is that correct, Kat? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay. Whew. I understood that. All right. Nerdy point number nine. When should the priors for Bayesian analysis be determined? Now, interestingly, in this study, the Bayesian interpretation was done much later after the original study concluded. Is this the right thing to do? Well, I'm not sure we should say it's the right thing to do, but there has recently been a trend in looking at study data through a Bayesian lens to try and tease out a bit more information from the data. And the authors actually acknowledge this point. So ideally for total equipoise and to remove intrinsic bias, a Bayesian trial analysis should be declared right at the beginning of the trial. And that's because choosing the right prior will actually influence the results. So ideally researchers should say in advance that they're going to conduct Bayesian analysis as well, and they should declare which priors they're going to use. Ooh, so it sounds like there's definitely a potential for bias based on the selection of the prior. So we got to be pretty careful with that. Do you think that's why they used so many priors when they did this analysis, Kat? Yeah, um, almost certainly. And it's also what brings us on to nerdy point number 10, which talks about downweighted priors. What, what in the world are downweighted priors, Kat? So when the authors of the Bayesian analysis paper designed their priors, they took the informative priors that they had from adult studies. The only meta-analysis available came from adult trials because the only paediatric paper is the Thapka age paper. But there's this argument about how we apply adult data to paediatric trials. So what the authors did is they downweighted them by 50% to apply them to a paediatric population. But obviously this weighting changes the amount of influence that they have. So this this fifty percent value that they decided on to downweight this is a this is just an arbitrary value is that correct? Yeah. So the priors are designed to have an effective sample size, and for the adult population trials, the team used the original sample size. Now, even downweighted, the use of these priors does make a strong assumption about the relatability of adult data to kids. However, the authors do comment in their introduction that with approximately 7,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests annually in kids and a current trial that's not due for completion until 2029, we kind of need to maximise the data that we have and make the most of it to help us make an informed choice. So ultimately, using a Bayesian framework, we can actually say that there's a high probability that hypothermia at least moderately improves neurobehavioral outcome and survival at one year. The trouble is, is that quantifying that is uncertain. 
Oh, man, Kat, that was a lot of nerdiness. And can I just say that I am so, so grateful that you took time to not only talk to us about the study in terms of Bayesian interpretation, but also gave some really, really nice definitions for how to think about Bayesian analysis. So I really appreciate that. Do you want to comment on the author's conclusion compared to the SGM conclusion? Well, we agree with both the author's conclusions. And is that surprising? Well, the answer in most cases of evidence-based medicine is, it all depends. Oh, and I think somewhere, Ken is smiling upon that answer. And in this case, it depends on what approach to statistics you're employing. It depends on what resources you have available to you. It depends on your clinical experience. And it also depends on the family's values and preferences. Can you give us the SGM bottom line? The benefit of therapeutic hypothermia on neurodevelopmental outcomes and survival for children experiencing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is uncertain. And resolve that case for us at the beginning. So, you update the family about how their child is doing. You emphasise that although you were able to achieve ROSC, there is still a long path to recovery. And you provide time for the family to ask questions. The family asks if there's anything more that can be done to help their child recover. And you discuss that there may be a benefit with therapeutic hypothermia, but you're not certain. The family decides to transfer the child to the paediatric intensive care unit closer to their home without the ability to perform therapeutic hypothermia so they can see him more often. And now, Kat, we've talked a lot about the data behind the study. How do you apply this clinically? I think it's tricky. You know, therapeutic hypothermia may offer some benefit to survival and neurodevelopmental outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in kids. However, there's there's still a lot of uncertainty. And what do you tell the, the family in this case? I would say, your child has suffered a cardiac arrest. We were able to restart his heart. However, there's still a lot to be done to help him recover. There are two paediatric intensive care units that we can transfer him to. One can do something called therapeutic hypothermia. This may offer some benefit in survival and function, but it's not certain. Let's talk about what you value and what you would like to prioritize during this difficult time. A fantastic end and some great shared decision-making. Well, Dr. Pritis, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on SGMPEDS and has been such a great experience working with you and learning from you. And you've taught me a lot about Bayesian statistics. And I have one last question for you. Where do you see us going with Bayesian statistics and research? Should more research studies include the traditional frequentist statistical approach and a Bayesian analysis? I think so. I would really like to see future papers moving towards both forms of statistics. It would provide a much greater depth of understanding of the trial data. With small sample sizes, we can get a better idea of effect and magnitude using Bayesian analysis. But we also have to be aware that small sample sizes can be differentially affected by priors. I think the bottom line is that if it was my five-year-old, with any benefit over 0% and no increased risk of infection or blood products, etc. in the original trial, I probably would go for it. But whether it's cost-effective or an available resource in the UK remains to be seen. And we probably still need more data. Well, as we conclude our episode, we again want to thank Twitter for the article suggestion. And if you have an article that you would like covered on SGMPEDS, please send us an email at sgmpeds at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. 
And before we go, Kat, can you give us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Everything.